The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1834, Ralph Waldo Emerson recorded the following passage in his journal. Quote, Boston, February 19. A seaman in the coach told the story of an old sperm whale, which he called a white whale, which was known for many years by the whalemen as Old Tom, and who rushed upon the boats which attacked him, and crushed the boats to small chips in his jaws, the men generally escaping by jumping overboard and being picked up. A vessel was fitted out at New Bedford, he said, to take him. End quote. Seventeen years later, a curiosity of a novel told a similar story in fiction. It landed with a thud, rather like a beached whale, but it's since been returned to its oceanic glory, diving into unknown depths, re-emerging with a joyous spout, and mashing up readers and critics alike in its gaping, enormous jaws. Is it the greatest American novel? Is it not? Is it one of the strangest and most wonderful books in the world, as D. H. Lawrence wrote, or is it, as a contemporary reviewer said, sufficiently deranged to justify a writ de lunatico, or a document asking a court to consider whether the author is insane? We ask and try to answer ten essential questions about Moby Dick by Herman Melville, starting today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Moby Dick, Moby Dick or the Whale. As it's called, the official title, the 1851 monstrous compendium of a book about whales and whaling and good and evil and America and the universe. Some rich, rich stuff here. Wild. A wilderness. So, to give you a little overview, we're going to do this episode in two parts. I've got 10 essential questions about this book. We'll do five this episode and five in the next there is a lot to cover with this book. And also, it's a book that invites us to take a few breaks. Melville certainly doesn't mind interrupting himself. His narrative will get going. And then, oh, hey, here's a chapter on harpoons. And here's one on pictorial representations of whales. And here's one on rope. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this band of sailors are still on that ship, still following that obsessed captain Still trying to enact his revenge on the... Oh, wait, let me tell you about Ambergris. And so, instead of doing all ten questions at once, we'll break this up rather like the Pequod. Spoiler alert. Break it into two parts so we can address five questions today and five questions next time. Ten is too many. Zero is not enough. Five seems just right. But... We will also do a little My Last Booking with you and continue our Kafka project, which we'll start right now. This is a randomized look at one of the 99 glimpses of Kafka in Reiner Stock's book, Is That Kafka? I'll read it while you are taking the break, and then I'll deliver the wheat, whatever wheat there is among the chaff. <laughs> 
whatever cream there is to be skimmed off the top. So into the coal mine for me, searching for diamonds down there, and we will see you. Oh, wait, I didn't choose the number yet. Come on. <laughs> Got to do that first. I don't mind descending into the mine, but I do reserve the right to wear a, a helmet with a flashlight on the top. At least I can't just grope around down there. The 99 rocks will all feel like diamonds, or the diamonds will all feel like rocks. Either way, I'll be lost. So here we go. Google is opened up. Number generator with the big blue bar at the ready. I type in 1 to 99 and let her rip. 61. Mm-hmm. Okay, that puts us back in the illusions section where we have been before. We found a small diamond with Kafka Invents the Answering Machine in there. This one, number 61, is called Kafka Dreams of an Olympic Victory. That is interesting. I'm not sure what event that would be in. <laughs> Trembling? <laughs> Was that an event back then? Well, let's take a quick break and find out. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app, or Wondery Kids Plus, in Apple Podcasts. Okay, we're back. Number 61, Kafka Dreams of an Olympic Victory. Okay, this, this is pretty good. Let me wipe the coal dust from my eyes and hold up this little gem for you, dear listeners. Kafka dreams of an Olympic victory. Okay, so he wrote the. <laughs> it's a fragment of a story. So he wrote it, but he did return to it and make some corrections. So although it was not published, it does have the feel of something he thought had some possibilities. It reads like a dream or a nightmare. In the first draft, he said, I returned from Antwerp which is actually where the Olympics were held in that year. But he changed that to X. I returned from X. So it's just some generic unseen place. The narrator has just set the world record in swimming. Can you imagine a, a less likely thing for our Franz to actually do, <laughs> be an Olympian in a, an event like swimming? That kind of success might have killed him. 
that kind of physical confidence, the the swagger that a swimmer would have, it's just not him, is it? But you can see how a dream like that becomes transformed into his way of thinking. He's not talking about the training or the competition. He's at the after party, at the celebration of his world record. And this narrator of this little piece is completely lost. He spends a long paragraph describing his surroundings, the banquet hall, the people surrounding him, and so on. But a lot of it is strange, estranging. He can't make anything out clearly because there's so much motion, glasses being raised, attendants running around, and perhaps everything was even all too well lit, he says, too bright to make things out, kind of a, a horrorscape. Some guests, especially the women, are sitting with their backs to the table, not even positioned in such a way, he says, that the backs of their chairs were between them and the table, but rather with their backs almost touching the table. So they're sort of swerved around just to turn their backs on him. He says he pointed this out to some girls who were otherwise so talkative, but when he said that, they said nothing in response. They only responded to him with long looks. And then a fat man with a shockingly white face gives a speech, and Kafka, or Kafka's narrator, cannot understand a word of what he's saying. Now we're really getting into Kafka territory. Right? The man's talking, but Kafka cannot understand a word. He sees the man dabbing his face with his handkerchief, and he thinks, well, that would make sense. He's so heavy, and it's hot in here, and, and it's, it's exertion, but the the... He realizes that it's not due to heat or exertion, but the fact that the man is so sad that tears are running down his face. And then Kafka, I'll just say Kafka, even though it's a narrator, I guess, but it's Kafka says, when he was finished, of course, I stood up and gave a speech as well. I felt practically compelled to speak because it seemed to me that some things here and probably elsewhere as well were in need of public and candid explanation, end quote. Things here and probably elsewhere as well were in need of public and candid explanation. Does Kafka deliver the goods with his speech? Well, in his particular way, I guess he does, although he's not really explaining much, but maybe in that lack of explanation, there is an explanation. Let's hear what he says. He gives a speech. It's kind of incredible. Speech. I'm going to read it all. It's one paragraph. And it's, I think, worth reading in full. Here's his speech after winning the Olympic medal, gold medal in swimming, setting a world record in the process. He says, Honored guests at this banquet, it is true that I have set a world record. But if you were to ask me how I achieved it, I would be unable to answer you to your satisfaction. You see, I actually cannot swim at all. I have always wanted to learn, but I have never found the opportunity. So, how did it happen that my fatherland sent me to the Olympiad? That is exactly the question that concerns me, too. First... I must observe that I am not in my fatherland here, and in spite of my great exertion, I cannot understand a word of what is spoken here. The most natural thing would be to believe that there had been a mix-up, but there was no mix-up. I have the record. 
I traveled back to my fatherland. My name is the name you call me. Up to that point, everything is true. But from that point on, none of it is true. I am not in my fatherland. I do not know or understand you. But now another thing that does not quite, yet somehow does, speak against the possibility of a mix-up. It does not bother me very much that I do not understand you. Nor does it seem to bother you very much that you do not understand me. The only thing that I believe I understood from the speech of the honorable gentleman before me is that it was inconsolably sad. But this knowledge is not only enough for me, it is actually too much. And the same has been true of all the conversations I have had since I arrived here. But let us return to my world record. And that's where it breaks off. That's the end of the fragment. You see, <laughs> do you see why I am so twisted, people? Because this kind of thing appeals to me. I would love to hear about a swimmer who trained, who succeeded, who triumphed, who felt humbled and grateful and proud of all, and all of that. That's the Disney movie that I watch. <laughs> when my kids are in the room, that's what I turn on. That's what we watch every four years when we watch the Olympics. I guess every two years we count the Winter Olympics. And I guess, I guess what I should say is that I wish... That's who I was, that that's what I preferred. Instead, when I'm alone and I reach for the books on the shelf, I gravitate toward weirdos like this guy. The guys who are at a banquet where they can't communicate. They set a world record, but it's, they've never even swum before. <laughs> It's a ridiculous fever dream of an accomplishment. There weren't years of training. He's never even tried swimming before. And now no one can understand him. What kind of speech is this? What kind of banquet could this be? And look at what he has. The one thing that he recognizes, in spite of complete misunderstandings, is that the speech before him was sad right? It's like music that cuts across languages, and in this case, moments of human understanding. He saw the emotion, and he didn't need words. He saw something that cut through the inability to communicate verbally, something he saw with clarity. And one might expect that this moment of clarity is a, a lighthouse, cutting a beam from a lighthouse, cutting through the fog, showing us the shelter from the storm, guiding us home. But the narrator insists, no, 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 no. Not only was this knowledge of the man's sadness not enough, it was too much. <laughs> That's too much comprehension. So let us return to my world record. And it ends there, presumably as the world writes itself, except by writing itself, we mean here in this fragment, as a world where, where people say things they feel they're supposed to say, Needed to be said. That's what he tells us. I've said something that I felt needed to be said here and probably elsewhere as well, except all in words that can't express any kind of meaning to people who can't understand it anyway. That's this vision. And it's both horrible and compelling, sublime, as we will hear when we get to Moby Dick. It's why I can never really get enough Kafka. Okay, so thank you, Kafka Generator, for giving us number 61. And let's turn now 
to a guy who didn't seem to have such a distrust of language. He certainly viewed it as a vehicle as powerful as the wooden walls of a whaling vessel. Herman Melville, I promised you five questions today, and we will start with question number 10. Call him Ishmael. That's the question. We are going do we do we call Melville Ishmael? Who's Ishmael? What's he all about? We are going on a voyage, hundreds of pages long, full of narrative and knowledge, and all being told by this guy, not Herman Melville exactly, but someone who famously begins with this very famous line: Call me Ishmael. What do we make of our narrator? Who what exactly is he? Who is he? What does he do? for our story. So let's begin. Ishmael. Let's begin with the the famous first three words. Call me Ishmael. Perfectly balanced, by the way. Easy sentence to say. Easy one to remember. As famous as any first sentence of any novel. I think only Anna Karenina and Pride and Prejudice even come close. But what's it doing? I've always read it as what I think is the most obvious reading. Here's a storyteller saying, here I am, here's my name, no need to stand on ceremony, I'm not Mr. So-and-so, call me by my first name, please. We can be intimate, we're going to be together a long time, I want you to trust me, I want you to, to be my friend, now let's start this mammoth story. I also think it's a quick way to establish that this is a novel, this is fiction. You see, in a lot of books, particularly ones from earlier centuries, there's a lot of throat clearing to explain who's telling the story and why and how they came to have this information, and they do all this up front. I I heard this while sitting around a fire, or I found these notes in a box, or I'm a publisher and this manuscript was handed off, and all the kind of establishing gesture, performance. We've we've dropped this over time. I mean, it can still exist, but there's no real requirement to establish that this is a novel or how the narrator came to write this particular story or learn this information and so on. Sometimes you'll see that, but it's no longer as necessary as it once was. Well, here's here Melville's kind of kind of cutting through all that. He's finding a neat, efficient way to say, hey, reader, you want some expectations set? Well, I don't need 10 pages. Here you go. I need three words. Novel, told by a character. Character name is Ishmael. Call me this. You're not in Melville's world. You opened a book by Herman Melville, but this isn't nonfiction. You're in Ishmael's fictional world. Three words. Let's get going. Ishmael was not a common name in America at the time. Biblical names were common at this time, even ones that are not so common today, like Obadiah, Lemuel, Hiram, Job, Abner, Thaddeus, Hezekiah. Not Ishmael, though. It does seem carefully chosen by Melville, who was, of course, steeped in the Bible, along with, as we'll see, Shakespeare and Carlyle. Ishmael in the Bible is the first son of Abraham, the son of Hagar, who was Sarah's. Sarah was Abraham's wife. Hagar was Sarah's handmaiden. You may recall that Abraham and Sarah could not conceive children at first, so Abraham Abraham had Ishmael with Hagar. Later, he and Sarah would somewhat miraculously have Isaac. Ishmael and Hagar were cast out. 
But God promised that Ishmael would be the leader of a great nation, and so he has been in Muslim tradition where he is regarded as an ancestor of Muhammad. What does this mean for Melville? Obviously, there's the link to Islam, which I don't think is necessarily that strong here, but it does kind of emphasize that Ishmael is above all open-minded and worldly and not as rooted in any particular religion as many of those around him. He's a, he's a big tent religious person. We also have Ishmael as representing an outcast and a wanderer in the Bible that takes place in the desert in Moby Dick. He's continually called to the sea, or as he puts it, the wilderness of waters. And, spoiler alert, Ishmael in the Bible isn't comfortable on land, not for long, and he survives in the desert only by the miracle of a well of water, which appears to save him from dying of thirst. And Ishmael, by appears, I mean it manifests itself in order to save him. From dying of thirst. And Ishmael and Moby Dick survives by a kind of miracle as well, where when his ship is wrecked and he alone survives to tell the tale. It's the inverse of the biblical Ishmael. One is near death for lack of water, and one is near death for too much water, so to speak. But let's not forget, before we get to the miracles, there is a kind of vision-seeking in these trips to the wilderness. That's why one often goes to the desert And the sea is a place to seek God, to seek truth, to seek oneself. Ishmael provides Melville with a kind of vehicle for telling us everything. He's on the ship. He's following Ahab on this pursuit. He's observing him and so on. But he's also someone with as much interest in whales and whaling as Melville, as we'll discuss later. He's been... Viewed as an unreliable narrator and a bit of a trickster, and he's been criticized as being kind of sloppily done from a fictional standpoint. This isn't a refined technique like Henry James. Ishmael often conveys things he doesn't know or couldn't have observed firsthand, sometimes without explanation. He jumps around temporally without really explaining that either, and at times the point of view shifts or the language changes tone or style. It's part of that mishmash quality that so confused early reviewers. He said, this is a chowder. (laughs) He's just throwing every ingredient into the pot, making a chowder. It frustrates people even today. But Ishmael has gotten more and more praise over time. Early reviewers tended toward the idea that Ahab was the protagonist and Ishmael was merely there as kind of a, a flawed or at least imperfect storyteller. But now I think the view has shifted to say, well, you know what? Maybe Ishmael is as important as Ahab here, and and even maybe Ishmael is more important. The different opinions toward Ishmael track different ways to read the book, not for plot, where clearly Ahab is more important than any other character. His obsession is the force that drives the events of the passengers on the Pequod, But as we've changed as readers, we perhaps read for more than just plot, or we emphasize other aspects like the book's stance on race, or religion, or America, or good versus evil, and so on. Here is Ishmael, who's a much more dynamic and interesting character than Ahab. He's the one who's there at the beginning, 
walking through the port, getting ready to sign up for the ship and meeting Queequeg and all of that. He's And also, he's not fixed in his opinions. He will set forth pros and cons on nearly any topic. He's open-minded, generous, reasonable, expansive. Ishmael, as many people have noted, particularly early reviewers, has biographical overlap with Melville, and there's one clue in particular where he says he's the nephew of the DeWolfs. That's the only relative we hear of Ishmael's in the book. And it turns out Herman Melville himself also was related to the DeWolfs. But the real overlap, the one that ultimately matters more than just Melville also went to a chapel and heard a preacher speak, just like Ishmael did. He also signed up for a voyage as Ishmael did and so on. The real overlap is to see that Melville had the same kind of tolerance and curiosity and respect for differing viewpoints as Ishmael. Imagine a book where the narrator is narrowly drawn and focused on one thing, obsessed, limited in his views, unwilling to embrace change, an Ahab, let's say. And he's riding along with a captain who's open, tolerant, fair-minded, and intensely curious about everything under the sun. You could write a book that way. And that might give us an interesting vantage point for the characters and the author, too. You could do a lot with that kind of a a setup and a structure, but that book would not be Moby Dick. Moby Dick is what Melville slash Ishmael has chosen to tell us. What he's chosen to tell us and how. That is, through Ishmael's viewpoint. And our reading experience rises and falls according to our relationship with that story told by that storyteller. Next question. Number nine on our list. Shakespeare the Bible, and Carlyle? Hmm. Thomas Carlyle. What's he doing here? What influence did he have? He's, he might be even, he might be bigger than Shakespeare. I don't know if he, you could say he's bigger than the Bible. Shakespeare and the Bible are easy to see. Carlyle, not so easy for us, unless you're, you're a fan of Carlyle, and then you'll see it straight away. So, Melville was an avid reader. He loved Hawthorne's stories for their darkness, and as we discussed in an earlier episode, he admired Emerson, although although not without some caveats. When writing Moby Dick, he had recently discovered Shakespeare. I would say rediscovered Shakespeare, but according to Melville, he was really reading Shakespeare for the first time when he was composing Moby Dick, since a, a youthful disease had impaired his eyesight and previous editions of Shakespeare available to him were in font too small for him to comfortably discern. So, he had recently gotten a hold of a book with bigger type and was amazed. It's easy to see how Shakespeare influenced him. The grand themes, the sweep, the tragic outcomes for the heroes. Ahab is a tragic figure. It's his fatal flaw that does him in. Also of obvious influence, the language of Shakespeare, inventing words, making them sound the way they sound. Moby Dick has been described as one long Shakespearean prose poem, and that's not a bad way to think of it. Certainly Melville felt as though language was 
fair game. It was there to be stretched, expanded, employed, deployed. Another easy influence to discern is the Bible. The book is steeped in good versus evil, religious impulses, different sects, S-E-C-T-S. We see the Quakers famous for their pacifism, who are also kind of bloodthirsty when it comes to whales. Both the owner of the ship, the Pequod, and Ahab himself are Quakers. The whaler that Melville himself sailed on, the Akushnet, was owned by a Quaker too. These are the Nantucket fighting Quakers, Ishmael tells us. Okay, fair enough. It's also a reminder of how far these Quakers have strayed, Ahab in particular. He's willing to push the limits of morality, humanity, Challenge God himself, if necessary. He's pursuing evil, evil as he's defined it, and he's not above selling his own soul if it will get him what he wants. The book has sermons. It has practitioners of a wide range of faiths coming together. And like Melville, the characters are steeped in the stories of the Bible. The spirits of Job and Jonah haunt the book. But the third major influence is a contemporary, few years older than Melville, Thomas Carlyle, the Scottish philosopher and novelist, whom Emerson called the undisputed head of English letters among living and working authors. That is, Melville was reading Carlyle when he wrote his novel, and here the influences are dramatic. People have listed some actual phrases and passages of Carlyle that Melville absorbed and transplanted into his novel. There's no question that the writings of Carlyle were very prominent in his mind as he was building his book and filling it with prose. But a few of the influences stand out to me in particular. The first is Carlyle's views on religion. Here's Carlyle in a letter setting forth his religious views. He says, quote, Finally, assure yourself that I am neither pagan nor Turk nor circumcised Jew, but an unfortunate Christian individual resident at Chelsea in this year of grace, neither pantheist nor apotheist nor any theist or ist whatsoever, having the most decided contempt for all manner of system builders and sect founders. As far as contempt may be compatible with so mild a nature, feeling well beforehand, taught by long experience, that all such are and even must be wrong. By God's blessing, one has got two eyes to look with, also a mind capable of knowing, of believing. That is all the creed I will at this time insist on. End quote. That sentiment runs through Moby Dick. It's essentially Ishmael's view. Better a sober cannibal than a drunken Christian, he famously says. Queequeg savage to us... He is a savage, I mean, he's viewed as a savage to the Americans of the day, but he's noble in his own country, the son of a chieftain. No doubt, from the point of view of his people, we're the savages. Our Christian beliefs are mere superstitions, Ishmael says. So let's set aside our systems and sects and try to look with our own eyes and evaluate with our own mind. Carlyle believed he could use reason to find his way to the transcendent. Things were not just things. They were emblems. They were symbols. They were things to be interpreted on the way to higher understanding. He, In his expression, he called them clothes. 
In his most famous novel, Sartor Resartus, or The Tailor Retailored, he says, The, quote, symbol proper is an embodiment and revelation of the infinite. The infinite is made to blend itself with the finite, to stand visible, and as it were, attainable there, end quote. Look at the symbols throughout this novel, the whale and its whiteness, Queequeg's coffin, the vast and wild sea. These are Melville seeking the infinite and representing it in his fiction. You can hear in Carlyle a familiar tone, the prose, the speaking voice in his essays. There's a playfulness to his way of arguing, a kind of, let's examine this and see what we find, shall we? with references to historical figures, literary figures. Ishmael sounds a lot like Carlyle. That's the voice Melville turned to when he put forward this mighty book. It's Carlyle's voice, as told through Ishmael. And then there are heroes, the subject of heroes. It's not hard to see Carlyle running throughout this Moby Dick as well. Carlyle was an advocate of the great man theory of history, and Ahab here is our great man. The world is bending to his will, for better or worse. He's the Julius Caesar, the Napoleon, the Cromwell of this craft. And there's another kind of hero that Carlyle describes and that Melville surely absorbed, the poet as hero. For Carlyle, this was Shakespeare and Dante above all. Those are his two examples. But in his essay, The Hero is Poet, he talked about the way a poet could embody a nation and the way that a poet could dive into meaning, could look for meaning, could dive into life itself and return with news of, quote, the sacred mystery of the universe what Goethe calls the open secret, open to all, seen by almost none, that divine mystery which lies everywhere in all beings, the divine idea of the world, that which lies at the bottom of appearance, as Fichte styles it, of which all appearance is but the vesture, the embodiment that renders it visible, end quote. It was powerful rhetoric for the 19th century Americans looking to make their way in the world to free themselves from the England that had its Shakespeare, the European continent in general. Emerson felt that keenly. We are a nation. Nations need poets, and Melville felt it too. And with this energy, he tackled the project of studying those appearances, reaching for that divine mystery and delivering it to us in a massive monument that also fits between two covers. And finally, there's this, my last piece of Carlyle. And Carlyle's quest to develop a religious or spiritual understanding based on his own eyes and mind, he came to advocate for what he called natural supernaturalism. All things are clothes that reveal and conceal the divine. And it has this aspect, which should sound familiar to anyone who has spent some time with Melville's Ishmael. Quote, A mystic bond of brotherhood makes all men one. End quote. That's the ship, the Pequod, with all these men thrown together under the control of one great man, great not meaning good, but powerful and willful, 
and full of destiny. All these men on a single metaphoric journey, Ahab's journey for better and worse, a brotherhood like you might only find in the close quarters of a ship where everyone has a task, everyone has a purpose, everyone has a part to play, and all fates rise and fall together like the ship itself bobbing on the waves. Okay. It's also a metaphor for a nation, isn't it? Speaking of brotherhood, we are up to our question number eight. We're counting down toward number one. Number eight is Queequeg and Ishmael. What is that relationship? A same-sex relationship ahead of its time? Question mark. Some kind of brotherhood? Question mark. Let me run through the evidence in the text. But I won't bury the lead here. There's not anything definitive. If you're looking for some kind of of marriage in the sense that includes sexual intercourse between two men, you won't find it explicitly in these pages. They don't have sexual relations explicitly. And yet, there's something that demands our attention. There's a reason why there have been a million essays exploring this relationship and comparing it with a husband and wife or two spouses of some kind or two lovers. Melville invites that. Here's how I think about the Ishmael and Queequeg relationship. When I got to D.C., Washington, D.C., where I live, I was struck by how Southern the accents sounded to my ear. A lot of, I was coming from New York. There are a lot of transplants here, and so that might be part of it. People from the South have come here, and I was hearing them. But I had also seen that native D.C. residents, as far as I could tell, people whose families went back generations, it sounded Southern to my, more than I was expecting. And the pace was undeniably slower than New York, and the air was hotter. And when I mentioned this to people, they said, well, you know, D.C., that makes sense. D.C. is the most southern city of the North. You're headed south. It's it's about as far as you can go and still be in the North. It's the most southern city the North has. Okay, got it. Go any further south, you're actually in the south. And that's, I mean, look on the map. Richmond... Virginia, which was the capital of the Confederacy, is about 100 miles away to the south. But then, when I would meet people from the south, from Mississippi and Georgia and Louisiana and Texas, they had arrived in D.C. and they would say that they were anxious about coming to D.C. because they didn't want to leave their home state. And they'd say, oh, and you know, I could never live in New York or Boston. D.C. is as north as I'll go. It's the northernmost southern city, you know. So which is it? The southernmost city of the north or the northernmost city of the south? Well, I think it's kind of both. And in that same spirit, Ishmael and Queequeg. Imagine a a spectrum with friendship on one end and lovers on the other. Are Ishmael and Queequeg the deepest friends that two men can be without being lovers? Or are they the, the shallowest lovers? They're hovering in the middle. If they're mere friends, you have to accept that they have a kind of bond that goes beyond friendship. And part of that bond is physical. If they're lovers, you have to accept that, at least in the text, they're not particularly close. They didn't consummate their relationship. We don't see that. They don't consummate their relationship with sexual activity. It's spiritual, and maybe that's as close. Certainly for some lovers, it is. 
you could call them lovers, even if they're not physically intimate with one another, but it doesn't quite cross that far. I've seen this described as more homosocial than homosexual, and maybe that's the right term for it. I don't know. Let's look at the text. Queequeg, if you've forgotten. Queequeg is a tattooed cannibal from an island in the South Pacific. His father is a chieftain, as I said. Queequeg has been gone from there for so long, he might be the chieftain now were he to return. He joined a whaler because he wanted to see the world and learn the ways of Christianity or observe them. Wondered what it was all about, though he himself continues to practice what Ishmael views as paganism or idolatry. Ishmael is, however, willing to learn about and experience Queequeg's religion, and he believes Christianity permits it. He says, what's the ultimate rule in Christianity? It's do unto others, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, what would I want him to do? I'd want him to sample my religion with an open mind, and so I should therefore sample his. So Queequeg, if you've noticed, he left because he wanted to observe things beyond his locality, and Ishmael is the same way. So they're kindred spirits, but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. When they first meet, Ishmael is staying at a crowded inn, sleeping in a room that's been rented to Queequeg. Queequeg returns, finding him there, and threatens to kill him. Who's the stranger in my room? Queequeg is a harpoonist and a warrior, first and foremost, much more of a seasoned whaler than Ishmael, by the way. Ishmael, in some ways, benefits from the attachment that he has to Queequeg. Queequeg's skill and ferocity as a harpoonist are valuable to the owners of the ship when they're putting together the crew. Ishmael has been on merchant ships, but he's new to whaling. He's got a lot to learn. Not as valuable. In any case, there they are at night, that first night. They ultimately settle in and they share the bed. We were a cozy, lo loving pair, Ishmael recounts. And he says that in the morning, Queequeg's arm was draped over him, quote, in the most loving and affectionate manner, end quote. Then he'd say, you'd think I had been his wife. Not but death should part us twain. So there we have it, bonded, united. They look out for each other till death parts them. And in fact, even after Queequeg dies... On the Pequod, it's his coffin that saves Ishmael among the wreckage, united beyond death, even. Now, you can have fun imagining what happened under those sheets between those two, if you'd like, but that's more your imagination than Melville's prose. Of course, as we've seen, there would be strong incentives for Melville not to put that in, not to be explicit, could have tanked his book even further than it already tanked. Given the standards of the day, we have what we have. What does it do? Why have this here? This intimate relation, it's undeniably intimate, even if it's not explicit. Just as Queequeg is an incredible asset to the ship, he's an incredible asset to the book. The experience as a reader following Ishmael's lead is to be afraid of him at first, but then to recognize him for his qualities, to get beyond the tattoos and the appearance and the, the harpoon at the ready, and to appreciate Queequeg for being an incredibly capable person. You can spot a little spot of oil on the ocean and 
strike it with his harpoon. We know he's a good whaler, but he's also just just a, a good guy to have around. A little muscle when you need it. And he's an incredibly loyal companion. You want Queequeg on Ishmael's side. And you wish you had a Queequeg in your life too. That's my experience anyway. And because they're so different, these two, their relationship is exemplary. It drops boundaries. It expands possibilities. And it conveys intimacy. It says you can have a soulmate who doesn't look like you, who didn't grow up in the way that you grew up. And it also helps to drive the plot, this pair going through life together, and it pushes the book and Ishmael forward to that kind of universality of brotherhood that we saw in Carlisle and that resonated so deeply with Melville. It's what he wanted from Hawthorne, too. It's not hard to see this as an object lesson for Americans. Hey, set aside your prejudices, people. It's not color or customs that matter here. It's what's inside that counts in this fledgling democracy and being on the same page, pulling oars in the same direction. Now, this is, of course, being written by a New Englander in the decade before Civil War breaks out, where slavery and anti-slavery forces are gearing up for that struggle. And also, as immigrants are pouring in to this new continent, this new nation, we're all brothers, Melville is saying. It's also a, a lesson for men, but one I think men kind of get intuitively. There's a friendship or brotherhood that can unite two men together, and it doesn't have to be rejected out of homophobia. It's okay for men and women to be friends without the sex part getting in the way, as Harry of When Harry Met Sally puts it. Right? Let's hope so anyway. Some of my best friends are women. So something I wouldn't trade. But it's also okay to feel a close connection with a man doesn't need to creep you out or make you a bad person. You don't have to be like my friend who can't sit next to another man at a movie theater. If you happen to love men and want to be intimate with them, that's fine too. The reason why I say men get this instinctively is because I think the Queequeg-Ishmael relationship, as far as it goes, is pretty common to a lot of men. Straight men, too. It's the language of sports teams and soldiers, naval battles, rock bands, and so on. Instances where men are together working in some group. We were pulling for each other. We had each other's backs. It felt good. Okay. We are up to our first, our, our final break. When we return, we'll have question number seven and question number six.
Question number seven, whales and whalers. How does this milieu fit into the world of 1851? How obscure or important was this vocation? Well, for Nantucket and some other coastal locations, it was hugely important. Whaling was big business. The history of men going out on open boats to hunt whales goes way back, 4,000 years. It's sometimes said 8,000 years, according to some images found in Korea, where they showed whalers hunting whales. In America, Native Americans went out. A hunt was described by a European in 1605, so we know it goes back at least that far, began as an industry among European settlers in 1640. Long Island and Nantucket were both established by the 1670s, and for the next 250 years or so, the industry continued to grow, mostly unchanged, but with constant technological improvements to the rope, to the harpoons, to the boats, and so on. In the 1750s, triworks were installed on ships. These were brick oven furnaces that were used to render the oil from whale blubber. It was a big change. That was actually a big change because it meant that the ships could stay out longer and they could store barrels of oil on board and they could pack themselves with their wares, making the individual voyages much more valuable. The Triworks is an unforgettable chapter in Moby Dick. The smell, the fumes, the sort of ship as a factory feeling of it, the processing happening happening right on board by the people who had just killed the whale. The whale was an incredible animal. It is an incredible animal, the largest mammal by far. The blue whale being the largest known animal ever to have lived, much, much bigger than any dinosaur When Melville was writing, whaling was about at its peak in North America. Whales were used for food, for baleen, or what's called whalebone, but it's not actually bone. Baleen is the stuff that's in the mouths of whales that, that constitutes that filter that whales use as part of their eating process. It was prized for its flexibility and strength. Baskets and corsets and collar stiffeners and umbrella ribs and so on. Today we use plastic and fiberglass for all that stuff, but back then it was baleen. The biggest prize of all, especially in the sperm whale, was oil. This was in the days, this was before the days of digging for fossil fuel, crude oil, and deep wells. Instead, the wells were, well, whales, with the sperm whale holding as much as three tons of it. This oil was good stuff. It was so much better than tallow that anyone who could afford it upgraded their candles to these spermaceti candles. Lanterns, lighthouses, street lamps, and so on. They were all using the spermaceti from this harvested from the sperm whales. And so out at sea, men were taking incredible risks, dying and being maimed in these conditions, these dangerous conditions, living a kind of hell on earth as they found these beasts and killed them in grotesque and bloody ways and then tied the carcasses to a ship as the sharks feasted on as much as they could stomach and then boiling up the whale blubber in these satanic mills to extract the oil into barrels. All of this 
And then all of this was these barrels of oil were headed back to civilization. So some lovely people with no doubt perfectly clean fingernails could read a little later at night. If one is searching for nature, here it is. Massive creatures, prehistoric, as old as time itself. Kings of the ocean, seeing things underwater that no man had ever seen. These whales are wilderness, capital W, gods of the sea, really. And if you're looking for God with a capital G, here is his largest living creation. If humans were the place where God went for smarts, whales were where he went for size. A romantic capital, that'll be our last capital letter. (laughs) A romantic capital R like Melville could not resist. Burke had defined the sublime as triggering the emotions of fear and attraction. That's the sublime, right? When you feel that dual emotion all together, something you're compelled by but also afraid of invokes that shivering feeling you have, but also you're seeing a beauty, but it's a rugged beauty. It's a savage beauty. It's lightning storms and and rocks on the coast and thunderous waterfalls, for example. Well, I think we can add whales to that list. The men and the ships that hunted these whales were tiny by comparison, but they were no less miraculous. The mechanics of a ship, the navigation alone, is full of incredible triumphs of human ingenuity and spirit. The craftsmanship of a vessel was impressive as well. It was refined by expert tradesmen and carpenters and riggers and so on. Every detail was refined over time to become more efficient, and the men were trained to carry out the commands which they did with know-how and muscle and endurance. There were crow's nests for sighting the whales, and whale boats hanging over the side, and buckets of coiled rope to be oiled or soaked and attached to the harpoons. Melville loves every detail. He relishes this world of the whales, and whale, he puts you right there. When he's pausing his narrative, it's because he wants to convey more facts about whales, these almost supernatural beasts and facts about the superhuman efforts of the men who are using their utmost strength and endurance and savvy to capture them. Melville wanted, well, let's say he, assume he wanted a Carlylean hero, or maybe I should say a Carlylean setting for heroes. This is what Carlyle wants too, a force of nature and great men challenging themselves against it, and a poet to describe it all with the intellectual and moral power of a Shakespeare. And Melville said, here I am. I'll raise my hand. I'm volunteering for this job. And here is a context worthy of the most vigorous writing that my expansive mind can reach. It's here in wailing that I touch greatness. It is here that I glimpse God. We are up to question number six, which is also on the subject of whales and whale hunters. This this time we're going to look at something very specific. Was there a real Moby Dick? That's the question. Melville didn't just dream up this idea, did he? Of chasing a white whale all over the globe? No, he did not. Whalers got to know individual whales. They talked about them, compared notes, and they could chase them around the globe. It's kind of astonishing 
given how vast the oceans are and how small a ship is by comparison. But there were a lot of ships crisscrossing the globe. Whales were their obsession. That was their purpose, to find them. And went on shore or taking on provisions or went at sea and coming into contact with one another. Two ships pulling up next to one another and exchanging information. The information was about whales. Where are they? What did you see? What happened? That was the exchange. Fishermen on lakes do this all the time. Where are you catching them? How was it today? I'm headed out. You're headed in? I'm headed out. What do you recommend? Why not? It just, it just still kind of surprises me that you can do that with an individual whale on an ocean, but you could. We heard from Emerson at the beginning, 1834, he was hearing about that whale, old Tom. Here's an article from 1839, a publication called The Knickerbocker, which published an account called Mocha Dick, or The White Whale of the Pacific, a leaf from a manuscript journal. Mocha Dick was described, it was based on the Mocha Island. Mocha Dick was described as being very old, of prodigious size and strength. It was white, its head covered with barnacles, and it had an unusual way of spouting, like vapor struggling from the safety valve of a powerful steam engine. According to the article, sometimes Mocha Dick was docile, swimming alongside the ship, but once attacked, it would, it would respond with ferocity and cunning. It's the cunning part that makes the skin tingle. To imagine this massive creature, often, where often the massive creature is just killed and plundered. To imagine that it knew what was happening, that it remembered its previous experiences with these ships, that it plotted its attacks, that it could itself seek revenge. Harpooners feared it. According to the author Jeremiah Reynolds, the Mogadic had survived at least 100 attacks. Reynolds believed that it was killed in 1838, and he said that it happened like this, that... Mokadek came to the aid of a female whale whose calf had just been slain by whalers. His body was 70 feet long and produced 100 barrels of oil, said Reynolds. They found 20 harpoons in the carcass. Now, that story, 1839, that might have been enough to trigger Melville's imagination, but there was more. In 1849, the same publication suggested that Mocha Dick was still alive. It said, do you remember Mocha Dick of the Pacific? This is a quote. Do you remember Mocha Dick of the Pacific? The great whale whose memoirs were published a long time ago in these pages. He cruised for years about the Pacific and was not infrequently mistaken for a small island. He had been made the depository of some two or three hundred harpoons and their broken lines green with sea moss and knotted with barnacles streamed like horrid hair from his sides. The old fellow has undoubtedly made his way through Bering Straits into the Arctic Ocean for the captain of the Superior arrived at Honolulu. Reports having seen, while cruising there, a whale so large 
that they did not dare to attack him, although he would have yielded some three or four hundred barrels of oil, yet the king of the Arctic Ocean was permitted to go quietly on his way. Viva Mocha Dick! End quote. Another real-life tale running around right at this time, shall we say swimming around, swimming around Melville Sea, was that of the whale ship Essex. This is the ship that Nathaniel Philbrick's wonderful book, In the Heart of the Sea, is about. The Essex was a Nantucket whaling ship that was launched in 1799 and spent 20 or so years hunting whales before disaster struck. A sperm whale attacked and sank it in 1820. And then the story got really famous because it got really ugly. A crew was forced to take to the whale boats and they ended up resorting to cannibalism to survive. I think we talked about this before. Seven of the crew members were sacrificed to be eaten. Eight survivors were rescued. This became an internationally famous incident. The survival. But for our purposes, I think the description of the smashing of the boat by the enraged, vengeful whale is the most significant part. Owen Chase, the first mate, was one of two survivors who wrote an account of what happened. According to him, they the captain was gone, by the way. The captain was out on a whale boat. According to Owen Chase, the crew that was remaining sighted an unusually large sperm whale, 85 feet long, that was acting strangely, lying motionless on the surface of the water. Suddenly, it began to swim towards the vessel, picking up speed and ramming it. The blow rocked the ship and appeared to stun the whale. Chase grabbed a harpoon and was planning to stab it when he realized that its tail was only inches away from the ship's rudder. And if the whale was suddenly enraged by an attack and started thrashing its tail about, it could easily splinter the rudder to bits. It would leave them without the ability to steer. It's a reminder of how fragile and desperate life is. This is... A high-stakes game being out on the whaler. This is like bullfighting in battle or battle or climbing a rock face to some perilous height with no safety ropes. It's the journey through a blizzard and realizing suddenly that one is lost and death might be near. I'm sure there are many moments of tedium on a vessel at sea, but when that storm arises or... That attack nears one is suddenly reminded that humans are puny and the earth is vast and perilous. When Chase saw that tail by the inches from the rudder, he was frozen in place. He couldn't bring himself to hurl the harpoon. The stunned whale shook out the cobwebs, so to speak, and swam away. And then... Several hundred yards away, it turned back. In Chase's words, quote, I turned around and saw him about 100 rods directly ahead of us, coming down with twice his ordinary speed of around 24 knots. So let me put that in our terms. That's 100 yards. That's 500 meters or about 550 yards away. And approaching with a speed of about 27 miles an hour, 24 knots 
is about 44 kilometers per hour, 27 miles an hour. So when he says, I saw him about 100 rods, what he's saying is, I saw him about 550 yards away with a speed of about 27 miles per hour. In the water, that must have seemed like it was flying. We're a little spoiled now by cars. They didn't have cars then, of course. We're a little spoiled by cars, which can go 60 miles an hour without too much trouble. But even a car moving 25 miles an hour is pretty fast. And in the water, my goodness, horses run about 25 miles an hour at a gallop. That's how fast this is coming toward them. Except it's giant. Most humans can swim two miles per hour. That's how slow it takes them to get through the water. Michael Phelps topped out at six. And that was incredible. This is 27 miles an hour. Imagine a car moving toward you at 25 miles an hour. Except a car is about the size of a whale's heart. Imagine an elephant running toward you. They can go about 25 miles per hour at their peak. Except an elephant is the size of a whale's tongue. You have to imagine a truck moving that fast, except a whale is about the length of three trucks, three school buses, and it's the mass and weight of eight DC-9 airplanes. A massive object coming toward you with shocking speed, coming toward your wooden ship. Back to Owen Chase. Quote, the surf flew in all directions about him with the continual violent thrashing of his tail, his head about half out of the water, and in that way he came upon us and again struck the ship. End quote. Its head was stuck among the splintered wood at that point. It thrashed around until it became disentangled and then it took off. The captain, as I said, wasn't on the ship at the time. He was out on a whaleboat, and then he returned. While he was gone, Chase, the first mate, and the other sailors were running around frantically trying to grab sea chests and whatever navigational aids they could get their hands on, knowing that they had to pile into the boats and they were headed on a desperate journey without being able to take all of the provisions that were in the hold of the ship. The captain returned in his boat this saw his sinking ship he couldn't utter a word he was too shocked staring at the wreckage as it sank into the sea finally he was able to speak in chase's account he said my god mr chase what is the matter i answered we have been stove by a whale <laughs> That's the kind of exchange I love, and I think Melville probably loved it too. That hearty brotherhood, that doing of one's duty. Not a scream, not a desperate or angry cry, not a shriek, not a sob. It's individuals still maintaining order, grimly conveying facts, showing respect to one another. The need to survive has begun, and these true professionals are determined to carry out their tasks. My God, Mr. Chase, what is the matter? I answered, we have been stove by a whale. 
these are heroes acting heroically, but not literarily, or at least not in the literature that Melville wanted to write. He wanted a tragic hero. We will have more about that in our next installment when we get to our questions, number five through one. But now, let's conclude on a less dramatic note, a quieter kind of reflection on morbidity where we can hopefully control our situation. That's the hope anyway, the hope that I am hopefully conveying in this series that I hope is hopeful called My Last Book. I've been asking guests what they would choose for their last book. The last, this is the last book they will ever read. I asked Emma Smith, expert in Shakespeare and an expert in books, what she would choose. She too returned to the 19th century, but where Melville looked to the sea, Emma Smith is looking to the sky. Okay, joining me now is Professor Emma Smith, author of This is Shakespeare and Portable Magic, A History of Books and Their Readers. Professor Smith, this question comes to us from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. This is such a, it, it's such a deep question, isn't it? Because mm, it makes yeah. you all kinds of things. I hope that my last book, the last book I read, would probably be my copy of an early 19th century bird book, an ornithological book. Oh. And it's by Thomas Buick. And it has wonderful woodcut illustrations mm -hmm. and a description of these different birds. And I find it, I love this book. It's one of my uh, favorite possessions. I find it very restful and calm and I hope that that's the frame of mind in which I would be able to read my last book and it would remind me that one of the things I most love about bird watching which is one of my great hobbies is that birds just do their thing completely almost completely independent of us they hardly even <laughs> really know we're here and that that uh, like everything else would continue uh, long after me. Yeah, I've found that now that there are uh, so many drone cameras that people can send up into the sky and kind of zip around a neighborhood and, and give us the bird's eye view, so to speak, it makes me realize, oh my God, we're just, we're nothing to them when they're up yes. there in the air. <laughs> <laughs> we're just like sort of these comical little figures on the ground. I think I think that's absolutely right. I think see having a bird's eye view is is puts us in our place. Now, when did this book come into your life? So, do you know, funnily enough, the first time I ever heard about it, it's the book that the young Jane Eyre is reading at the oh, beginning of that book. Yeah. Um, and she I was sort of interested at that point what that book was. Yeah. And then I had heard more about it. I was interested in birds and I was interested in, in the history of books and I knew that this was an important early example. But I didn't see one and I didn't know how big it was. I, I think I had an idea it was a bigger kind of book than it is. In fact, it's, it's quite a small kind of regular paperback sort of format book in two volumes. And then I was making a, a radio program, in fact, about Robinson Crusoe. And this Thomas Buick did some illustrations to Robinson Crusoe so we went to Thomas Buick's uh, house and saw these illustrations from the early 19th century. And I was, you know, really loved them. I thought they were wonderful illustrations. And I got 
a small but very welcome amount of money from doing this radio program. And I thought I'm going to buy with this a copy of Thomas Buick. And I was looking around because they're a little bit too expensive for me, but I was trying to match the sum to the sum I'd been paid. And eventually I got one, got a copy. Mm, right. Oh, when you said that it was a book that was, was being read in Jane Eyre, it, it gave me goosebumps because maybe I'm just a, a literature nerd to my core, but the idea of obviously that was a book known to Charlotte Bronte as well. And it makes this appearance in a book and you're sort of connecting in a way with literature and being able to kind of meditate in a way that a character in a novel and the author would have enjoyed yeah. that book and experienced. It feels like a kind of a soulful experience. Completely. And it's one of the just amazing ways that books do connect us, don't they, with people and books as objects connect us with people and worlds, not just books as books as content. But I'd love I love to think who read my Thomas Buick, you know, what what Jane Eyre type figure in the early 19th century enjoyed this book and I hope they enjoyed it as much as I do. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature, Thomas Buick and the Birds. That is a very good choice and a very literary one. The Brontes loved that book. We've counted down from 10 to 6 in our look at essential questions of the novel Moby Dick. We will have questions 5 through 1 next time. Moby Dick is such a good read and such a wild ride. Speaking of wild rides, have you heard of a Nantucket sleigh ride? That's what they called the ride on the boat after the whale was harpooned and it was dragging. The, these are the little boats, not the big ships. These are the little boats. They harpooned the whale and the, they went on a ride as the whale dragged the men in the little boat for miles until it finally tired out. That was the hope. Imagine being dragged across those waves with that furious engine ahead and the whale diving deep trying to take the craft down with it. The whale saying, here's what I have, my power in the sea. Let's see how comfortable you are down here in my element, you puny surface dwellers with your fancy sails and sharp harpoons. Dive into the deep with me if you can do so and live. And sometimes they did not. Or they had to cut the rope to survive. Whaling is... Amazing. Speaking of amazing, we have some amazing guests coming up, including Dr. Tara Bynum, who will take us back to the 18th century and early black Americans, and Rupert Holmes, the singer-songwriter you may remember from the Pina Colada song. He's also won a Tony for his Dickens-based Broadway musical, and he's won an Edgar. He's a novelist, too, and he has a new novel out that is delectable, like Edward Gorey come to life. Pull up the covers... And get ready to smile in that gashly crumb tinies kind of way. We have many more good eps this year, so stay tuned. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>